0: Hi, I'm William Lehtinen and welcome to the Talent Eagles podcast. In this episode, we're going to get into how an insuretech can help mitigate the destruction in wildfire prone areas through the use of really innovative AI technology. But first, just to jog your memory on what these fires are actually like for the people who experience them firsthand, we've gathered some footage and news reports from southern Australia and the west coast of the US in Nauru, the fire jumped the shoalhaven river i'm scared witless either side of the princess highway the main escape route was a bonfire
1: tonight in california fires burning at both ends of the state blazing temperatures and strong winds giving birth to this a massive fire firenado it is incredibly dangerous because of how erratic The fire behavior is, I mean, think about it, you actually have a whirling column of air on fire.
0: Meanwhile, thousands of residents in Oregon fled their homes to escape flames that have already incinerated more than 230,000 acres. And Washington's governor says that the state has seen more fire damage in one day than it typically sees in a year. So imagine you lost your home in one of those devastating wildfires I just played in that clip. Who do you turn to, to help rebuild your life? You turn to hopefully the insurance company that you had a policy with, but who is backing up that insurance policy, ensuring that you can get paid? It's a reinsurer. But there's an issue the reinsurers are currently leaving the wildfire market because they can no longer accurately predict the likelihood of wildfires happening. Because of the intensification of wildfires with climate change. My guest today is the CEO of a brand new company called Kettle that is looking to address this very problem. Kettle are working with some highly advanced AI technologies to more accurately predict the likelihood of wildfires happening in given areas, and thus being able to provide the insurance policies that homeowners need to rebuild their life should fire happen. My guest name is Andrew Engler, and Andrew is one of those people who is fundamentally rethinking the way the 600-year-old insurance industry is working. Andrew is what we can think of as a next generation of talent. He's what talent can equal when we take the best of technology has to offer and apply that to some fundamental problems that our sector is facing. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i did and without further ado i give you andrew engler andrew engler welcome to the show thanks for having me absolute pleasure thank you very much for spending some time speaking to us today so andrew you are a co-founder of kettle right so what is kettle
1: uh, it's a good uh, question. And, and normally the first thing is people say, why are we called Kettle? And it, it's because of a whole different kettle of fish. So Kettle is <laughs> a reinsurer that uses deep learning to, to better price and understand um, reinsurance risk in climate affected regions and, and really try and bring protection to people that are in these climate affected areas.
0: OK, so why is reinsurance so important in these climate affected regions?
1: Reinsurance insurance is this incredibly old and and storied industry it's about 600 years old it started back in in italy and and really its primary purpose is is protecting insurance companies and really protecting people against big climate disasters so like Wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes, and and it's actually kind of a common mistake that insurance companies. Everyone thinks you know you get your homeowners insurance from you know Middall State, a State Farm, and and that person's covering you if there's a huge wildfire that destroys your house. And that's not actually correct. Um, there are these massive companies that sit behind it, like Munich Re and Swiss Re. That essentially, when this event destroys your home and destroys the two thousand homes next to you they're the ones who end up paying out the claims and and footing it it's because those primary carriers they they can't handle the loss of losing 5000 homes at once and so um it, it has been a very important obviously there's been hurricanes and and typhoons and and tsunamis since the beginning of time so it's been a very critical function um and only recently has it really started to experience some some incredible difficulties because obviously uh, the the increase in climate change has increased that frequency and severity the amount of events and how bad they are and and how often they happen
0: Mm. so maybe it's helpful for the listeners to understand a bit about your journey into this like how and why you ended up trying to solve this problem around predicting wildfire and then helping to you know underwrite those Risks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it is like anyone in insurance. It's a really weird and interesting journey. I, I don't, very few people go start out as a kid. I'm sure and go, oh, I want to get into actuarial modeling, and then I'll go to school somewhere <laughs> and and get into risk management. So um, I, after I got out of college, I had a history degree, and and I'd always been a, a closet nerd and kind of a hacker, and which basically just meant I broke my dad's computer a lot uh, as a kid um and had an opportunity to to work with an agent at at allstate and help him build a a book of business and it seemed like a great place to earn money at the time and as i got more and more involved in insurance i realized it's this incredible industry that there's a litany of problems it's very undeniable the fact that most people don't like paying their insurance bill but you essentially have this industry that's protecting you against the worst outcomes that can happen. So, so preventing your worst fears from happening. And if they do happen, you know, making you whole again afterwards. So if your house burns down, you, you don't just lose your life basically and, and have no way to ever recover. Um, there, there's someone there to financially back you up and protect you. And so, um, yeah, started with the agency there and, and ended up using, a little bit more modern data science practices that then were being used at the time and, and a little bit of software to to grow that into the second largest uh, book of business in California. And then uh, took over the commercial book of business for the state of Arizona and helped them build an online quoting platform. And, and then was lucky enough to spend the last five years um, a, as vice president of digital for a company called Argo Group. And really with this focus of understanding, there is such a massive opportunity to bring software and specifically a, a, what we call like a data science practice or machine learning into the, the insurance industry, because you look at insurance, it, it is literally the original data business. I mean, it, it is all based around understanding core data concepts and, and variables about your clients so you can better price it and understand how to how to run a profitable company. Um, and yet, when you look at it compared to its big brother, we call it like the capital markets and and equities. It is very far behind from quantitative aspects. you You have many quant funds and and modern quantitative technologies that that are proliferated through the capital markets. And in terms of insurance and especially reinsurance, they're still using, you know old school stochastic modeling and a lot of these technologies that that haven't advanced over time. So, it creates this huge opportunity to to really use modern software to one you know make a better experience for the customer first and foremost and transact it easier but two the this second part that that has really become uh, you know life obsession of understanding how we we predict the probability of these events happening and price them and model them better
0: mm. so why do you think that The industry never modernized in the same way that, why didn't the insurance industry modernize in the same way the capital markets did? What was it about the business that stopped them doing that, do you think?
1: They didn't have to. And again, you know, the the common misconception to most people in insurance is like, oh, you know, insurance companies work really well if they just underwrite. You know, if you can say who's going to have an accident and who won't, you're going to make a profitable company actually the reason why insurance companies are so profitable is because of what they're they're called the float and it's why warren buffett is warren buffett warren buffett is warren buffett because he owns geico and geico makes billions of dollars of premium a year which he can then invest and 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 get return off of so over time you know it, it has been a a kind of core understanding that as long as we're running an okay loss ratio, as long as we're making, you know, um, 95 or making five cents to every dollar that we put out, then we can invest it and make a lot of money, which kind of creates this innovators dilemma where you're not forced to do massive innovation and, and really push forward the core concepts of like underwriting in your business until you have an event like climate change, which fundamentally pushes you into the red and now makes it unprofitable to underwrite, which makes it really, really hard to make all your money back on investment and and really stresses the investment portfolio side of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sort of in this instance, nature really has been the, the mother of invention here. It's 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 really forced the hand of the industry to figure out how to deal with these natural catastrophes now that are happening much more often And I can see that in what you guys are having to deal with wildfire, because, you know, you'd have to basically have lived under a rock not to have known in 2020 that with every other crazy thing that happened, there was record wildfires going on in California and in Australia. It was a really terrible year for wildfire. So um, maybe given this is your sort of wheelhouse now, um, but many people don't know about wildfire, but... And every time I speak to people, they go, oh, everyone's talking about wildfire in the insurance industry right now. So what is so difficult about insuring wildfire?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, let's take it back down to like basics in the way that that wildfire used to be looked at. And and so when you're using stochastic modeling, essentially to to very much oversimplify it, you're saying then let's use California as an example. I'm going to look at Los Angeles. I am going to look at, you know, the entire state of California, and I'm going to take a historical data set of 500 years, and I'm going to say how many wildfires happened. Okay, if I want to price Los Angeles, I'm going to say how many major wildfires hit Los Angeles in the past 500 years. Well, that's happened twice. So that gives me a pricing to understand that there's a one in 250 chance that a major wildfire will hit Los Angeles this year. That's correct, unless you've had a complete nonlinear increase in the frequency and severity of those events over time. So now you have this core problem where you used to be able to get actually really accurate results from stochastic modeling and say, okay, here's the frequency. And we know if there's a one in 10 chance of it happening, we can price it right and, and everything can work out. Now, if you have no idea what the frequency of these events happening, if the camps or or the tubs fires are a one in 100 event or a one in 10 event, you have no uh, understanding and no core on how you're supposed to price that risk. Because if you price it as a one in one hundred event, and it happens to be a one in ten, you're going to lose a massive amount of money. And is it if you price it at a one in ten, maybe no one's going to buy it because the the client, the insurance company, is looking at it as a one in one hundred. So you have this complete breakdown in, in the marketplace of of communication between price transparency and and extreme price dislocation happening. You know th- there was a very good move by by um Gavin Newsom the governor there and what he said was as these wildfires started to increase over time and the severity of them started to really increase he realized that there was an uninsurance and an underinsurance crisis about to happen which is if you can't predict how often these will happen or you don't have any idea how to price it anymore the only thing you're left to do is leave the market so what he told the primary insurers is you are not allowed to leave the state if you are in a wildfire zone. You can't non-renew on people's policies. Because what would happen is just the, the primary insurers would just start saying, no, we 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 have no idea how to price these homeowners. We have to move away from it. So what happened is, is it created a moratorium on the ability for the primary insurers to leave. What didn't happen is there wasn't a moratorium for all those reinsurers. So at the end of the day, remember, all that catastrophe risk gets offloaded off of a primary carrier's balance sheet onto a reinsurer's balance sheet and now the reinsurers are still have the same problem of saying this is way too volatile we don't know if 2018 is going to happen every year or going to happen every 20 years so we no longer think we can price it correctly we're just going to price it as high as possible to feel comfortable or we're going to leave the market so what you have is all the supply for all that catastrophe risk start to move out of the market which creates a huge demand spike in the front for all these insurers who Will pay anything to, to offload that risk off of their balance sheet. And so again, you 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 exacerbate this problem of price dislocation even more. And you get to the point of saying, All right, unless we can understand uh the probability of these events happening in very geospecific locations, unless I can understand like for this home, what is the probability of it burning in the next year, then we're going to have a serious issue in understanding how to insure it and how to protect it in the future.
0: Right, and so there's these homeowners, basically, going through these most, you know, harrowing experiences of walls of fire sweeping across their land, um, maybe killing livestock, incinerating their homes, destroying sort of everything they you know everything they had, and maybe killing people. You know, these are really massive events. And then, you know, insurance is there to help build back those communities, right? That's the point of them. But then if they're left not being able to get that insurance, it's devastating. So you've kind of really well highlighted this fact that the government can step in and and stop the insurers leaving. But then there's this whole network of people behind who need to be there, the reinsurers. So there's a problem. And there's a problem with the way that um, wildfire was being able to be assessed um, because the stochastic models just weren't doing a good enough job anymore. So where did you come in, Andrew? Is this, were you observing this and thinking, like, there's a problem there. I want to solve that. So,
1: yeah, I, I you know, I, I'd say it's just become like part of a, a strategy that I constantly use. And, and the way I I guess the lens of my mind views the world. So I three years ago, we moved out to Bermuda um, as I was working at Argo at the time. And. As I started to dive deeply into the reinsurance industry and look at it, I realized there's these systemic issues that were building up over time. So this idea of that, you know, we could keep using stochastic modeling to understand these events, and and yeah, they they trend back to the way they used to be over time, which isn't the case that we've seen. So in in my background, understanding like the the more deeper concepts of of deep learning and, and large data sets and asymmetric information that you'd find in satellite imagery, the weather data, understanding that if you could do a very good job at taking this massive amount of information that sits out there, everything from MODIS, LIDAR, Landsat, all the NASA satellites, they've been running for for 20, 30 years, some of them, Um, and this is incredibly good ground truth data, and be able to create a a fully automated pipeline that translates it, because, you know, at first, you can't just take a satellite feed and give it to a machine learning model and say all right predict what's going to happen it can't read it so you have to be able to translate all this information that comes in into a computer readable format, then if you do that you, you, you end up with what we had which was about a 7 billion line data set. And when you look at this data set we said all right, the traditional machine learning models that are out there so to, to get a little bit on the techie side. When you look at the majority of machine learning models that, that, that are out there today, they're all based off of um, a human mind, really, or the majority of them are, and they're very good for a multitude of tasks. They're not great when you're dealing with something that's steeped in chaos theory, so so where you have billions of variables that might be coming in and, and you're trying to use a statistical probability of an event happening.
0: So what is chaos theory? I thought I'd interject here for a moment because... It's quite an important theme to understand because it affects so many disciplines in insurance where we're trying to model very difficult risks and it has its application in many other sectors as well. But the metaphor of the butterfly is probably what most people will know when it comes to chaos theory. The idea that a butterfly in Peru can flap its wings and that will create... The storms in the Atlantic months and months later. It's this idea that in seemingly random events, there are actual underlying patterns and deterministic laws which affect those random seeming events. Chaos Theory. Hope that helped
1: and so this is where like you know the second part of our journey started after we did the kind of mind-numbing amount of work to, to translate it into computer readable format and create that fully automated etl pipeline um we, we started in this next venture of saying all right we, we need a complex enough deep learning architecture to to really understand the complexity behind these events um and, and we ended up doing a lot of experimentation and and the off-the-shelf stuff we, we found it works okay. It's better than than what's out there right now. But it wasn't the orders of magnitude better you want to put a billion dollars limit out on.
0: So tell us about the model that you did end up working with at Kettle.
1: We ended up finding our way in, into a breakout branch called particle swarm optimization, which is far more utilized in robotics and nuclear particle physics modeling. Um, and Dr. Kennedy, one of the, the researchers who founded it, he was brilliant. What he said was, Instead of using the construct and architecture of a human brain when you build your machine learning model, if you have something that's steeped in chaos theory, why wouldn't you use a hive mind structure? So something you'd see like in a beehive or a termite hive. And and the point of that being is, if you have an incredibly complex structure, you want to have an incredibly complex output. Beehives and termite hives are incredible. So there's 100 million termites in a hive. Each one is kind of dumb and simple, but very good at its little simple job. And the beauty is when you get 100 million of these little actors to communicate with one another and dynamically influence one another's decisions, you kind of get this group think. And all of a sudden in nature, you get these insane outcomes that no single individual would ever find um, possible. And I'll I'll, I'll let everyone nerd out on their own and won't bore them here about West African termites and the 30 foot mounds they build with fully automated air conditioning systems. Um, But what we recognize is instead of having one giant neural network, we should have 32 separate neural networks that work concurrently with one another and dynamically influence and communicate with one another in real time. And when we switched to this newer architecture, we suddenly saw this huge jump in our F1 score. And, and we abstracted back and had to understand why is this working so well, comparative to, to other other algorithms. And it made sense. And it's because when you deal with something like a wildfire or something that's steeped in chaos theory in these climate events, you have 50,000 wildfires every single year on the West Coast, maybe one to 15 of them become a camper Kincaid or a Woolsey or something of that size. And the reason is you have to have billions of small little variables lining up in an absolutely perfect storm of everything going wrong for these events to break out. And it's because you have to have all the wind speeds, the brush color, um, you have to have the elevation, the humidity and and, and a litany of, of other variables all lining up to say this can break out into a massive five thousand acre wildfire. And that's what you're really concerned about are, are these big events. We're not concerned about the the one or two random fires started by a lightning storm and, and you know, burn for thirty minutes and then they're gone. So so that's really where our breakthrough came through and, and where we really found that that there was massive opportunity to to start creating a, a new form of, of reinsurance
0: underwriting amazing thing andrew i'm gonna to have to go back and double click on a few of those things because there's um there's a lot there's a lot there definitely so um you started out talking about stochastic models a lot of people listening to this are in fintech and insurtechs so they may know that but those are not you know stochastic models are ways of predicting the likelihood of an outcome right this is like the way that you could predict something happening and then you you did mention something like a an etl pipeline i wasn't quite sure what you meant what that is um what is an etl pipeline
1: Yeah, the, the easiest way to think about it is like as the data comes in to the satellite, we extract the data from, you know, the database so it all gathers inside of the satellites database like sitting in a server and we extract that information out and that information is kind of useless to machine learning model and we translate it so just think of it as like a pipe you created that translates it into a computer readable format. So it creates it mm-hmm. in ones and zeros and, and makes it so the machine can actually understand an image. You have to use a computer vision algorithm again, because like, if I tried to show this image and say, all right, predict, uh, you know, which one of these images is is William and which one's Andrew, it doesn't know that inherently. So you have to literally break down the image mm-hmm. pixel by pixel. And you can say like, okay, this exact color of white in the top left corner of my screen is pixel color zero one 0, zero 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 zero, and the machine can read that it can read the zero one zero zero zero. it can't read oh off colored white with a shadow on it, so creating this pipeline is critical because you have to be able to translate the data and bring it into a machine readable format to to actually even begin the process of using machine learning on satellite imagery on satellite data and and weather data maps
0: yeah, so that's it's definitely a case of. Right solution and the right time. You've got to be there at the right time with both of those things. So, thank you for explaining a bit about the satellite stuff, and you may also mentioned about the F one score. And for maybe those people listening, this is like a measurement of accuracy for an experiment, right? So, this is the F one score. The closer you are to to one, if I'm correct, is that right? The, yeah, precision the right, the over
1: recall. And and so you know you you have to use. You can't just be like super easy with accuracy and machine learning, especially in chaos events where you go like, oh, it's ninety nine percent accurate, because technically machines are 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 smart in the way that they're dumb <laughs> I, I say um if you have an event like you know you're trying to predict a great one is always like oh if if you have a million people you give loans to can you predict which ones are gonna default well the machine would be correct 99 of the time if it just said no one defaulted because the likelihood is only like one percent of those people are gonna default so the The way you have to skew your accuracy is you have to heavily reward for a true positive. So like in wildfire, we heavily reward the system when it guesses um, that there was a fire and there actually was a fire. We give it a little bit of a tiny reward if it says there wasn't a fire and there actually wasn't a fire. And we heavily punish it if it says, I don't think there's gonna be a fire and there actually was. So you, you have to skew the way that you measure it.
0: So I just wanted to pause here a moment again to really focus in on what Andrew is talking about here with punishments and rewards for AI and machine learning. This topic is called reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning is the training of machine learning models to make a sequence of decisions based on rewards and punishments. The agent, the agent is what they call the, the model they're creating, achieves a goal um, in an uncertain or you know highly complex environment through creating these artificial reward and punishment criteria. And that's why Andrew rightfully was very very focused on ensuring that the model that Kettle created was giving reward in the right way to ensure that they got an outcome that was meaningful. This is important because once the hive mind or the AI, the ML model agent that they've created reaches an outcome, it's impossible currently for us to go back and understand exactly how the computer made that decision. So the only way that you can calibrate later on is to then add again more of these rewards um, and punishments. So. I'll make some show notes, some links in the show notes to reinforcement learning for you. I think it's a really interesting um, area to understand, and I hope you found that useful. Anyway, back to the show.
1: If you look at it, you know, when we ha- we say we have an eighty four point seven percent F one score, so our precision in recall. Um, the, the best way to put that back into like real numbers. So when we did our prediction for twenty twenty, we modeled the entire state of California and we said, all right, here's our prediction of what will happen. Um, At the end of this year, we looked back and out of the 14 major wildfires, 11 of them we predicted in the top 10% most dangerous zones that the model predicted. And if you move that metric up to like, so what the model predicted is the 20% most dangerous areas in California, we were 14 for 14 for predicting where those fires were.
0: Oh, wow. And that's. That must have been a game-changing moment. Was that like a, a late at night event? Like you, you press the button, you're waiting for it to spit out its results, or you know, was it was it sort of you know cinematic? That's what I'm asking. Or was it just one of those things where you're like, oh, I got the email. Yeah, that worked. That was good. I wish you were like what, one of those moments. It's much more
1: like when you put out the prediction in, in February and then you go like, all right, let's ride, and, and we have confidence. So you have a mathematical confidence in, in In what your statistical (laughs) ability is because you're training on a historical set, you know it's Mm. mathematically Mm. correct, but everything, all anything can change in the real world when when it happens. So it's more like Mm. watching each day and each week and each month and going, Oh my god. And and, you know, you hear about the fire that happened in Lake, and we go, You you log on at you know 6 a.m. and you're like, Holy, holy ass, like, let's see where it is. And you look and you're like, It's a very surreal moment to be honest, of looking at it going. My God, the model was like showing this is one of the top dangerous areas we were corrected. And then there were ones that we missed, you know, we're 11 for for 14 if you look at the 10 percentile. So if you look at the the CZN fire uh, or sorry, CZU, which we looked at and then we had to go back and say, well, we still predicted it in the 20 percent most dangerous areas, but it wasn't like in our top 10 percent most likely. And we look at it and we say, OK, what was wrong? OK, the the lightning randomization factor in it what wasn't high enough. And and so this was a strange event. And now we have to like kind of retool the model towards it. So it, it is very much it's an emotional experience. You're looking at your baby wow. and you're, you're looking at you perform incredibly well in real time. Then other times going like you always want to be perfect, which will never, ever happen. So it, it's a it's a um, a fun pursuit in perfection that you'll never reach.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what people I am trying to get my head around as well as well when I listen to you talk about what this does is effectively your system is using historic data, analysis of previous patterns, you know, weather conditions, random events, like kind of visual imagery, a whole range of data sets, right, to predict what will happen in the next year, right? And where is gonna happen next time. And this is the amount of variables that go into that like you said these seven billion lines of data these are the sort of levels of complexity we're talking about then you deploy your your neural networks your 32 hide mines to like these sort of mirandering um, termites so they're trying to figure out all of the potential variables and then bring those solutions together and then predict where this is going to hit and that fire is going to happen in that neighborhood next year that's what we say i mean that is I mean, what an incredible achievement to do that, right? And it must be really exciting. But on the flip side, let's be honest, like we're, we're thinking about people's homes burning down, right? Or these areas burning down. So it's like, I can understand it as the observer and you're trying to solve these problems with success. And you're like, yes. And then like, oh no, how does that fit? Because there must be this sort of discord between the two situations, getting it right. And obviously knowing what's happening.
1: Yeah. And so like just to give you the scale on on like what you're talking about, like the uh, on the on the previous part. Every single time we do one iteration of our engine, we do three tetracillion calculations, which is a three with forty-three zeros behind it. And essentially, you're literally looking at that's a great uh, word. the model is literally mm-hmm. taking every single possible iteration. So it's saying on August eighteenth, the wind's blowing thirty miles an hour. It's on a thirteen-degree grade hill. The brush is this exact color. It hasn't rained in, in you know uh, four days, and uh, there's a one-way dirt road right here. Every single time I see this line up, I, I'm going to guess there's a wildfire going to happen here. And if it's correct, it stores all of that and the millions of other variables that line up there and says, I'm going to use this next time to predict it. And then the next time it says, I'm going to do it for August 19th and I'm going to do it at mm. a 12 degree slow pill. And so you can imagine how, wow. why we wow. get to three Tredicillian calculations. To, to your second question there, we know we can make incredible corporate profit off the back end as a reinsurer. It's a... Um, very good like our you know market right now in terms of like dislocation and being able to understand what a good risk is and a bad risk and you know the the beauty is that we can literally fund all this research with with the reinsurance profit and then essentially take all of this research and give it away for free on the front end because we're funding it through the back end and we're making our money as a reinsurer so we can give it away for free to governments to in and, and legislators to say stop building in these areas, we give it away for free to fire departments to say hey here's better places to create fire breaks because these are the most dangerous areas of our model. Um, and you know and also hand this information away for free to like energy providers to say here's a better shut off strategy because this area is much more dangerous you should you know know to shut down your power lines in this specific region and and also at the end just hand this information for free back to the insureds so they know how to price the risk because what you want to do you're not trying to create more price dislocation so you can make arbitrage and essentially do better when when everyone's doing worse Wildfire is kind of this beautiful thing. where, like, we're all in it. No one does better when there's more wildfires that are worse. You want to mitigate the risk because as you mitigate the risk over time. So now as we influence the market and say, don't build in these places, shut down power here, all of a sudden the losses start to decrease over time. And as those losses decrease over time, now you have stability in the pricing because there's less volatility in what's happening, which just means you can get more supply out to the market which means you can create more and more size and get more and more people covered. So everyone ends up winning in this kind of like perfect cycle of it if it's done correctly.
0: And it's wonderful that so you are able to give this information away on the front end and you said you're looking for that. So you're looking for a business which can make money and also do something good as well. That is got to be right, a win-win. And, and I, I'm thinking about that as well is like these businesses that can achieve financial return but help to solve a societal issue as well um because we've you know the whole reason that we're experiencing these problems in my opinion with climate change and such um is because people have been too greedy you know companies have taken too much people have not cared about the conditions and the results of our 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 habits of consumption and um fossil fuel consumption and a whole range of other environmental degradation processes and, and and unfortunately that's what's driving this so we need to put something back we need to do something more Another day, maybe I, I bang that drum, <laughs> but um, I maybe maybe come back with you. Rewinding the clock a bit together, you talked about, you know, being out in Bermuda, which sounds lovely, you know, sipping your cocktail on the beach there, um, thinking about what, how you're going to solve the woes of the world. And you kind of started to think about these problems with your other co-founders and starting to create the problem. How long does it go from thinking of the idea, having the idea to going through iterations to getting that? That, that ticker tape come out of the machine, giving you your 80 odd percentile F, F rating, whatever it was, to getting that, how long does that process take for you?
1: Oh, I mean, well, like some iteration of the idea was bumbling around my head for seven years. And and like, I, yeah, as they say, like the overnight success that takes five years, like the, I, <laughs> I I truly believe in, and there's a multitude of other leaders who say it, like like the, the patience level we have towards you know, we constantly see the stories about like startups with the seventeen year old who like got out of MIT and like and you know, started up and now it's worth a billion dollars. Like that is not the vast majority of of companies out there. Like it is a slog, and it is a slog of things going wrong over and over and over and over, and over again actually like this company alone like when we really started on it one of the first things that happened so the original idea was to use this algorithm and, and and pricing to create an evacuation policy we wanted to create like evacuation policies i'm from california one of my cal one of my co-founders lives there now and i was in bermuda at the time and he got stuck trying to evacuate from her from the fires and i ha- almost had to evacuate from a hurricane in bermuda and our idea was like we have the means to to evacuate and and it's still actually a really difficult decision. It's very expensive. It's like 3000 dollars, and let alone like we're not in financial dire situations. So we we really needed to to try and figure out a way to to create simplified evacuation policies where someone could pay fifteen dollars a month and know that if they were in a wildfire zone and there was an evacuation ordered, they would instantly get three thousand dollars in a bank account and be able to leave. So we thought this was a brilliant idea and, and no brainer dog fooded, as they say, like we'd buy it. And we we ended up applying for Y Combinator and getting like very, very far into the process all the way to the last interview, which is actually incredibly hard to do, which is when you go all the way out to, to well, when you used to go all the way out to like Menlo Park and and sit at a table and you have 15 minutes to pitch these legendary guys who I love and read nonstop and guys like Paul Graham and Sam Altman and stuff and and tell them your idea. And they basically tell you yes or no. If you get in Y Combinator is this very, very prestigious accelerator where some of the biggest names in in history have come out of. And the day before, you know, we said, look, we need to really like test our product market fit, as they call it. And so let's just go down to Target and, and, you know, ask people if they'd buy an evacuation policy. There's like even smoke on the hills. And we're like, this should be a no brainer. And I just remember Nat and I went down there and it was one of the worst experiences of our life. Like people were like, "Ooh, no, like get away from me. Like, what are you talking about? Why would I want evacuation? And that was our first sign. And, and we went through Y Combinator and ended up getting denied. And they said, we we just don't think you're going to be able to sell this. Like it's going to be too hard. And that was just like a total like kick in the gut and like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like this thing that that we've had this idea and been working on iteration. Iter- I could tell you a thousand other iterations of it before. And then, you know, we kind of came back to it, it, but this is like the game of startups. And we went, well, we know we have something good here. We know we have in the algorithm behind being able to price those evacuation policies was the first generation of what we have today, because it was very good at predicting where these wildfires and evacuations were most likely to happen in the next year so we could price it correctly. And and so we kind of stepped back and said, well, we know we have something good like why are we going after like the front end let's go after the big idea like let's just build a reinsurer from ground up which is kind of an insane idea takes a lot of capital it takes a lot of expertise and a ton of 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 data science horsepower but we're like look why don't we just take a shot at this one and that's where the kettle itself like really took off and god bless it you know we, we we worked like crazy um over the the past year and um, built it up, and, and we're lucky enough to, to have something pretty fundamental and that, that, that is fundamentally powerful and recognized and a seed round off of it from wonderful investors. And now we're, we're well underway of, of growing the company.
0: I've got to go back to something you said, which I'm fascinated by. So you got all the way through YC, as the cool chaps call it, right, I hear. Um, and you got all the way to the end. They said, okay, no, but you wanted to go and test your idea so you you went with someone to your local supermarket or store, and what stood outside and asked people if they'd buy it? Like literally, you stood there with a clipboard and said, "Hi, do you want to buy oh, some no, evacuation we insurance?" And, is that like, what you did?
1: Hunted aisles and like even asked employees and stuff. And that it was. I I one of my favorite <laughs> things like I tell the team is like one of the easiest ways to to do well in business is just go do what you're uncomfortable doing. Like so. If you know you're uncomfortable going to a store and asking someone to buy your product, then you know there's something wrong or like there's something out there. Or if you're uncomfortable having a a conversation with an employee about like some issue, then that's literally the most important conversation you need to have. Like, it's just natural. We kind of always gravitate towards a place (laughs) of comfort and and that place of comfort can lie to us for quite a while. Mm. Um, So, and it's normally pretty easy Mm. to test out assumptions. Like you, you, believe me, it's not, fun it never feels nice but like it's pretty easy to get this stuff tested out and see if you have something or not
0: yeah that's really great so i can just imagine you in the in the aisle for like cereal like I, tapping on lady asked like please go hi, away and you? like
1: it, it, and look I, I spent the beginning of my career building an insurance <laughs> agency so i've sold insurance like over the phone and face to face for the beginning part of my life so it's not something uncommon and that was still one of the most gruesome tasks that you can imagine
0: Hmm. that's really important it's a really interesting point and i actually think doing some type of sales or tele sales or some type of role like that door-to-door work early on in your career very early on is such a great skill to develop because nobody you know till you've sold something like face-to-face to to somebody you really you know you really are missing out on a really magical moment of human interaction and, and learning a lot very very quickly. I suppose now I just want to sort of talk a little bit about like going on to get in where you are now, because you talked about your seed investors. So where are you guys at at the moment with Kettle? Because, you know, I've, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you guys are doing. You've got some really impressive people behind you. So you, you're now at seed stage. You want to tell people what you're doing and sort of what's, what's happening next for Kettle.
1: Yeah, we, we were very lucky to to have um, quite an overwhelm of, of interest in what we were doing. And, and, and we, we initially went out to, 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 Silicon Valley and the VCs thinking like, God, no one's ever going to want to invest in, in a reinsurer and balance sheet risk. And the, the point we made to him is like, look, reinsurance is essentially the, the single greatest safety net we have left against climate change. Either that or like FEMA or government programs. And the, you do not want to overload FEMA and government programs with the job of, of making people whole again and and protecting them after a huge climate change event happens. It is not it'll create a humanitarian crisis. So it's very critical for reinsurance to work. And so we, we Mm -hmm. raised our seed fund and had incredible investors come in like, like true ventures and, and homebrew, uh, accrue Anthemis and, and inspired. And and now we're currently growing like crazy hiring. It feels like (laughs) every day. And like the main part of our business is really deploying. So we set up our, our operations and, and bermuda and and we have uh, obviously, it's kind of a new world where we're we're all distributed. So part of us are in California, part of us are in new york and and part of us are in Bermuda and London. So spread out quite a bit. Um, but it's really iterating on the product. so so continually increasing the accuracy and and data that's coming in and and abilities of our of our architecture. Um, And then the other portions of it are are raising risk capital. So while we have our own small internal balance sheet, we we leverage that with traditional capital providers. And and we've been blessed in that sense, too, that there is definitely a a lot of interest in the industry from pension funds, hedge funds, and, and and uh reinsurers to to really you know work with us to deploy capital to make sure supply comes back into the market and a a lot of demand from the front end too obviously of people wanting to offload wildfire risk so Mm. we've just kind of seen this incredible growth that knock on wood you know it's funny in in our side and maybe i've just been in reinsurance too long i'm always like what what's gonna go wrong like something has to go wrong because we're so used to that and maybe that's just my own screwed up brain in it but um yeah we're, I, <laughs> be, we're we're in a very blessed point right now and, and running up and we're all two to to anyone mm. at this point in time like it seems it's very hard to see like in periods like this and we're dealing with covid and so many things going wrong and and it seems like these are like the down periods and in, in in history and they're actually not in an entrepreneurial setting just google online and look at like top 20 mm. companies created during a recession you'll you'll see airbnb Uber, all of these companies started in 2008. It's because when these massive catastrophic events happen, everything starts to fundamentally change underneath it. You have paradigm shifts happen. Mm. And, and in that point, you know, Uber started because like people were losing their jobs from the financial crisis and going, I need to make more money mm. somewhere else. So the, these actually present themselves as the greatest opportunities for innovation as opposed to, you know, these moments when everything's going down, all the good times are over and now it's going to be terrible for, from now on. Um, And Mm. that's I I think maybe it's because we've worked in in reinsurance and insurance so long. So we're used to seeing how often these events happen. Mm. They're actually much more common. These black swan events, as they're called. Um, They're very much more common than the human brain lets us believe. So uh, they, they just present massive, massive amounts of opportunity for innovation.
0: That's really fascinating. And I just want to actually go back to I think this this idea of innovation and what you're doing and why it's so exciting. And something I've touched on with previous guests is and Andrew, I'll kind of try and try and summarize this if I can best that what you guys are doing with kettle is being able to understand predict um, the likelihood of wildfires occurring. So you're more able accurately able to price that and now you can take on primary insurance, underwrite primary insurance, with a, a much, much more granular understanding the likelihood of someone needing to claim. And reason investors are so excited by that is because you can create a pool of risks, which you've really priced accurately. You've got a really nice arbitrage because nobody else is able to price it like you against the market, against the primary insurers. And so that can allow an inflow of capital, which at the moment, there's terrible interest rates, right? There's like a zero, the governments are printing money. And so there is a desire to find alternative asset classes. And so there's these trillions of dollars floating around pension funds or everywhere else, you know, capital markets trying to invest in these things. And you'll create effectively starting to create a pool of risks which people can invest in. Did I do a good enough job with that? How you does did that sound? better
1: than me, even. That that was phenomenal. <laughs> <I might laughs> Thank steal you very that. much.
0: I want to pivot here for a moment, like in in sort of our some of the last parts of this, because you built a team. So um what is it like building a team and and has that been harder than you expected? You know, or, or what if, what has gone into building the team that you've got? What are you learning about that? And what would you tell other people your experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar. I mean, I've built teams up to like 40 people in, in past like roles and stuff like that. It's fundamentally different in COVID times when you can't even meet an employee and face our potential employee face to face. I think we'll see a shift into like kind of like, oh, would you be able to consult for a bit and then come like work because it's this great like trial period where someone can make money and, and you know, do multiple things at once and then, you know, uh, jump on full time. But it, it has been very, very different from past like hiring experiences where we have an influx of people wanting to join because it is such like a core mission driven company and, and hits so many marks and, and, you know, we're lucky to have like excitement around it and and have articles and and Forbes and like fortune and stuff. It it definitely, if you have a mission and vision behind it and and people realize like, this is something that I would love to wake up every single day and and just do um, the hiring part becomes a lot easier. I would say I, I, I take a lot of influence from like if anyone wants a great recommendation there's something called like the the valve employee handbook um that, that was put out there's a company named valve and they own half-life and steam and, and all these incredible um software uh uh developments it's so a video kind of,
0: game use, video game maker but they yeah. actually yeah. own yeah. like
1: a video game store now which is incredibly yeah. profitable but valve has this beautiful book that they created for all their employees and, and it's really the way we look at it because it's very horizontal structure and the way that they're structured and and it's created around like giving people massive amounts of empowerment and telling them like figure out what's wrong with the company like jump to the point of biggest need and jump in there and and help out so like find your place in the company and we're here to support you like find it but like it's much different than like that we're hiring you for x role you're only going to do x come in and like do that position and stop like talking to this person, stop worrying about these problems. It's very much more like you have people hunting down the biggest issues and fixing them. Hmm.
0: How have you found, Andrew, one of the perennial issues you are recruiting in an area in reinsurance where people are very comfortable. Um, it's a well-paid industry, right? And um, actuaries, I don't know if you're recruiting for actuaries and uh, people like that, they're a risk averse bunch. Have you found that to be still quite difficult as a, as a hiring talent or has that not been an issue for you?
1: That hasn't been an, an issue for us. And actually, I mean, look, we like to call actuaries are the original data scientists. Like there is an absolute love of what we've been doing, especially in these like incumbent companies. They have been nothing but incredibly supportive and, and great conversations because you know we're really just trying to bridge this gap between like the modern data science practices that, that have proliferated in, in capital markets and in quant methodology and and bring it to the industry that that is the original like data science business and and it's really like kind of a beautiful marriage between the two it always it's always weird to me when I see like startups saying like oh we're gonna come in and take over the insurance industry and like kick out the incumbents like no you're not like these are incredible companies that have built billion massive billion dollar balance sheets and have been protecting the world for decades like they know exactly what they're doing. and and there's just a, a match to be made in in terms of like this kind of future iteration that happens. So the companies yeah. that will succeed are very much in partnership with them and in no way like, oh, we're going to compete and eat their lunch and and you know they'll die out
0: cool. that's interesting. I'm glad to hear you having success in those areas. so you're so what I heard from that from the valve stuff, you you're taking a model where you're going to try and put values at the center of the business as well. um and create a flat hierarchy where people smart brainy people can come and solve big problems by searching out those problems having some agency right to do things um i heard that right cool so i'm, I'm mindful of time and i'm really thankful for the time you give me today as we sort of wrap up the show today i always like to ask about influences and um specifically like we're in covid right now i'm in second lockdown here in england it's a pretty stressful time um and I'm sure you're exp- you're, maybe your employees are experiencing the same thing. And I noticed from your your stuff you do in your, your spare time, you do some charity work. So I was wondering, maybe tell us a bit about, about how you stay well and like how you help others to stay well. What are you doing, Andrew?
1: Yeah, I, I think anytime that you're like kind of focusing outwards and in a great mutual like relationship you can have. So a lot of times like people who are mentoring, one I love mentoring, the entrepreneurship like um, community I promise you is one of the most friendly and welcoming like we had so much help getting to where we're at, there's no way we would have ever got the funding we had without the incredible support of like a million people I I wish I could name and I am always willing to to help out any person just had someone randomly reach out to me on LinkedIn three days ago saying they have some climate idea and I I always want to help out in that so it's important to like pay it forward in in those circles and one of the other great things you can do too and when i'm mentoring they say well how do you get like higher in your your career and how do you get to like a vp level one of the greatest things you can do is like go work for nonprofits. so in your free time if you have you know a bit of, of digital skills and you can learn all this stuff online I, i'm a case study for it of, of just taking millions of online courses and reading every blog uh, available and what you can do is start to use like some of these tools that you're learning in, in true practice for for nonprofits, because nonprofits are always looking for people to especially younger people who understand digital technology to sit on their boards and and to and to, you know, help out in, in terms of like their social media practice or or their website development, whatever it may be. And it's great because you actually can start sitting in a in a leadership position. Now, you're not going to get paid for it, but that's the beauty of it. Like you're going to sit in a leadership position, learn more about how to be a leader and be able to give back incredibly to like organizations and causes that need your help and, and your um, support more than anyone in the world. And, and I, I've been lucky enough to work with great organizations like um music uh neurological musical uh, association in arizona and, and gabriel's angels and places like that that i got to work with people because generally the other people on the board will be ceos of giant like companies and and people who just want to give back so great environment to and, it, really and is that develop
0: and is that what helps you stay healthy in some ways yeah yeah is it, yeah, sort of, oh, is it that idea of- i mean
1: that that's the only way to stay sane i i, I would say is is constantly like trying to, to focus outwards if you focus inwards then yeah mm. there's a lot to worry about and a lot to especially on what's going on in the world and and instead if you're just focused on like solving small little problems that are around you constantly then yeah th- there's a lot more sanity in that i believe than trying to to just read things that you can't fix
0: mm. i've been i've been thinking a lot at the moment on compassion and kindness all for ourselves and for others and it's such an abundant state and by you know i think we're all so fortunate we have so much abundance in our lives people like yourself and myself and i know how lucky i am to have what i have and by going to help others you you know you really get a sense of what you can give to others and through that giving and it 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 really is like a great like restorative force right you feel good about yourself you feel others feel good about themselves so um and um so for those listening you know look you know you can just go and find a great charity to work with. And I can testament to that, my work with Rainforest Trust. And um, it's just great knowing that you're helping other people. Well, final thing, um, I always ask all of my guests, so your favorite book, Andrew, what is your favorite book that you recommend the most or you give out the most?
1: That, that's a hard one. I I, I would say um, the, the number one that I always recommend is actually a little bit hard to find. Um, it's only in hardback. So well, actually there might be some digital copies now, but it's called Poor Charlie's Almanac. It's by Charles Munger who's the number two at, at, at Berkshire Hathaway. who's was probably the most brilliant human being on earth. And it's all about how you use mental models to kind of, there we go. Yes. Oh my God. I See? got it. So the, the, <laughs> and William, I'm sure you will attest that is one of the most brilliant books ever written that will change your life fundamentally.
0: Absolutely fantastic. There's a hint to this one. I love this book. It is a fantastic book. I bought five copies. Yeah, it I know sell, because sell it's so hard to I give find them away. <laughs> this is probably yeah, the reason why yeah, you I have to only find it for a hundred bucks it. on
1: Amazon when I try and give them out. No, the, the
0: way the, the way you do it is you buy it from the publisher. You can only buy it directly from the publisher in the US because of the way I think they did it. But it's um you can find it. Uh maybe I'll post a link in the show notes to where you can go and order it direct because Charlie gives away all the all of the proceeds. So it's um yeah, a wonderful recommendation. Poor Charlie's Almanac, it's just such a fun book. It's massive. It is.
1: It's beautifully written. It's yeah, it's great for a coffee table even, but you'll tear that thing apart over and over again and go, "My god, how is one human being so smart?"
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um that's a wonderful way to end the show. Andrew, I thank you so much for your time. Um thanks for sharing your journey with Kessler. I really genuinely wish you the best of success.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, an absolute pleasure, William. It was really an honor.
0: Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us on another show of Talent Equals. A big thank you to our sponsor, Exige International. Without the support of Exige, we wouldn't be able to make this show. Um, An even bigger thank you to our production team, Andrea Maraskin and Samantha Smart, because without their help and support, this show would not be what it is. Um, Please do join us in the next episode. We're going to be interviewing the incredible Lisa Leahy, who is and has been one of the foremost thinkers in and around adult development and has been critical in the development of what I think is one of the best change models the immunity to change I hope you'll join us on that episode and until then have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.